Welcome to part two of the interview I did with Jordan Brady, the director of I Am Comic. Now, anyone who listened to the first part will realize that I cover a lot of his films that you haven't seen, such as Dill Scallion and Waking Up in Reno. And this next part really doesn't deal with any of those at all, more deals with his career, why he secretly thinks I like I Am Comic, the wondrous film career of Jeff Altman, what exactly the comedy version of AA is, and why The Aristocrats, the movie, is actually a big joke on the audience. Were you just performing in between the production conclusion of Waking Up in Reno? And Oh, what I was doing? Yeah. Oh, no, I was doing commercials. Okay. Were you just frustrated with the, the Hollywood process and you, and you decided to go into something a little more accessible? Well, the truth be told, I've been doing commercials since trying to raise money for Dill Scallion. Mm-hmm. Somebody said, hey, you wanna, we're not going to invest in your film, but we'll, you want to do this commercial. And so I did that one, and then I got another one, and then this company signed me. And I always did commercials, even obviously not during production, not during prep. But I would sneak off and do one during, you know, if the editor said, I need a week to put this all together, I could grab a commercial. So I never stopped really doing them for any long stretch of time. And then just been on a roll since. But it's hard once you had, you had a couple of strikeouts. It's not the easiest thing. And then when you go meet at Disney for Freaky Friday or whatever, and you're not that excited, and then you just watched a couple of films have their herbs and spices washed away, you're left with kind of a bland thing that your name's on. Are you saying that, really, that Freaky Friday does not have any original moments in it and that, you know, that, that you wouldn't have brought your herbs and spices to a remake of a movie nobody particularly remembers? I'm saying that um, I probably would have brought my herbs and spices. That's, and some, they may that's have been, some gumption. I don't know if I'll stand for that. They may have been whittled down to the salt and pepper. Okay. The, the most depressing thing about watching I Am Comic was, you know, obviously I spent a lot of time watching Comedy Central as a kid. And, and um, you know, watching everyone you grow up now, seeing them all fat, old, and pockmarked is kind of traumatizing. So thank you for that. Yeah, but Silverman's held up a little bit better than that. I know. But she's actually a person I've never found funny. I've always wanted to find her funny, but she's so one-note that I, I can't... Jesus' magic was just painful for me. Fact, oh, I like that. I thought it was funny. There's moments that are funny, but, but, her, very... but her songs are awful, and they go on forever. And it's just like it's a showcase for her, her music, and I, I don't know why. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you something odd. Doug Benson once called me a cunt because I said I... I asked if her singing was uh, bad on purpose or it was like, was it a joke on her show? And he got very upset at me and said, how dare you judge her, blah, 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 blah. And he, you know, it's funny to see like a a semi-celebrity flip out at you for a question that just occurred to me while watching her show. But I just don't, I I want to find her funny, but I, you know, the whole like, I'm a cute girl who makes naughty jokes it might as well be Wendy Liebman because she's kind of doing the same thing anyway. You know, the underhand, like the backhanded, underhanded reference, whatever that would be. You know, say right. the complete opposite thing. But I guess... Yeah, I mean, that's why there's 33 flavors of ice cream. Right. You know, like I, I told you, I'm not blown away by Louis C.K. And you say that at the, you know, at the alternative comedy club. And right. People look at you like, hey, old man, what do you know? 
you don't get our kind. Well, Louis C.K. is know, an old I'm man, though. For... The, the, the thing about Louis C.K. is he's just, he's sort of like an angrier, prolific, more honest version of most comics that we see. And yeah, he, I guess I'm waiting for a little more, I'm old school, you know, I'm just waiting for more punchlines. I don't think they're coming. I, I think that the way he started, no. he's converted is more of a storyteller, and I'm okay with that because yeah. I, I like very, I liked a lot of his his sitcom. But then when he went into sitcom conventions, it was problematic. It was no longer mocking it; just became a kind of foul mouth version of anything, any sitcom you can see on the air. They, they just say fuck. But then there were moments of brilliance. But you know, when it got canceled, I know he was sad, but I wasn't. I think I think that he had gone as far as he could with the with the premise. Like I don't know where else you can go with it and I mean how do you how do you feel about your film compared to some of the more solemn uh, documentaries about comedy like the Boston one or comedian or you know any number of others that are like that that aren't just straight stand up shows? I think mine's funnier. I think I think I am comic gets more laughs. Well sure, but uh, that's that they have a different yeah. approach. I mean the the Boston one is reverential, which I think is a mistake because the, we, the people who weren't there, and I was there actually because I went to I went to college at Emerson. So you know all those. Not, I wasn't there during the, that period that they went there, but like you know when they were performing, I certainly was. But anyone who doesn't understand it would just be like, "Huh? Lenny Clark not being funny? I know what that is. So why is he being reverential about not being funny?" I actually saw one of the earliest cuts over at Fran Salamita's house, mm-hmm. and I begged him to call it A Night at the Ding Ho because they used to perform at the Chinese restaurant called the Ding Ho. Right. And Ding Ho is just a funnier word, you know. That's just inherently funnier than when stand-up stood out, which is a little verbose and already sounds like it's putting on them fancy pants airs. Right. Um, I, think it's a, I think it's a fun documentary. And I think the mistake I made with I Am Comic is calling it a documentary. I should have called it just an ode to stand up or something like that. Right, because you had uh-huh. someone who says, like, you don't, why, why are you being so serious about this stuff? It's supposed to be comedic, and, you know, I, I can't remember if someone says uh, something David about Dell, it. Yeah, yeah why, you know, I, I kept watching the movie, like, you should probably try to cut down on the pretentious bullshit. And I don't remember if I wrote that down because I thought it or somebody said it. But, uh, David Tell says, why are we all serious? Very right, I, I remember that. That, that. I wrote that down separately, but then I wrote down, parentheses, trying to cut down on the pretentious bullshit. That should have been on the screen. <laughs> I, yeah, I guess. That would have worked in the movie. Okay. I, 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 I want a what writing credit then. But how do you balance that? Because the other ones have taken that tact, that tack, comedian perhaps takes the thing a bit too seriously. And the funniest thing about comedian is actually the trailer for a comedian. And the Orny Adams stuff is hard to take seriously. Because, honestly, I don't know anyone who knew who he was before that. And now he's kind of like a national joke within comic, the comic circles, isn't he? Oh, yeah. Rich Scheidner at one point saw an, an edit of I Am Comic and said, I won't be your Orny Adams. <laughs> and I said, Orny Adams got put on the map by being who he was in Comedian. Right. I enjoyed, I enjoyed Comedian. I think no, I did, too. I, did, I, I enjoyed it, too. But, uh, you know, where is that balance? Like... You know, you want to you want a serious ex- exploration, but you also don't want to take yourself seriously. Like, what did you cu- have to cut out a lot of material that you were like, this is really smart, but it just everything is just too dry. Yeah, I mean, Louis C.K. talked about your brain is like a record getting you know vinyl etching in the groove, and 
for me, having done stand-up, would go, oh, that's interesting. You know, when Louis C.K. was talking about that, it, it was incredibly interesting. He's well-spoken, and he, I think he's a, I think he's compelling to listen to, but it was a little too much inside baseball. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you want a film that reaches, it's, oh, speaking of baseball, uh, what's the, you know, when Bull Durham came out or when Punchline came out mm-hmm. with Sally Field and Tom Hanks, comedians are on, you know, we don't have lockers at the club. Well, you know, who cares? Right. It's made for a, it's made for a broader audience. So when things got a little too serious, that made the editing room floor uh, just a little bit thicker. So there's the one with Julie Kavner. Do, are, do comics appreciate that one more? I can't remember what it's called. But made in the early '90s. Nor- Nora Ephron directed it. Basically, Julie Kavner decides to be a stand-up comic and starts to ignore her oh. kids on the road or something. Oh, I don't know that film. And it's not coming to mind. This is your life. No, this is something like that. This is. Your, well, there was there was one with uh, Richard Lewis as Billy Gondola. Da, 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 da. This is your life, Billy Gondola. She might have been in that one. No, she was the lead in this, and it's a Nora Ephron script, if not directed as well. I just wanted to make a silly, a silly film. Okay. I just wanted to make a silly film, and, and it had to be somewhat based in reality of what the real... You know, I wanted to show what it was really like on the road, because people are always asking me, especially like you direct commercials, and you're on set while they're lighting, and different people every week, and they go, well, what was it like when you are a comedian? I like so-and-so. I love Andy Kindler. What's he like? Do you know him? Okay, sure. And I tell some stories. And I'm like, you know what? I'll just make a movie. And then when I had looked at Phil Berger's The Last Laugh, you know, it's a pretty good book written in the 80s, I believe, about stand-up from, you know, vaudeville forward. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Comedy on the Edge, which came out a few years back, about the 70s. And I said, those are, I'm too lazy. Those are too aggressive topics and they're too all-encompassing for me to, to make something out of. So then Amazon.com recommends that I get I Kill by Rich Scheidner. This algorithm says, you bought these two books, you may enjoy this. And then I Killed is, you know, it's a book you keep on the toilet, like I said in the movie, and you flip through and read a couple of paragraphs and you've read somebody's road story. And I didn't think a movie of road stories would hold up. We started interviewing comedians, and it seemed like the pat thing to do would be to follow an open micer. And it seemed, you know, a series of talking heads does not a movie make. Comedy Central could put interviews about hell gigs on in, in six-minute little chunks. Well, they should. There should be a show called Have Hellgig. a show. <clears throat> there you go. Pitch it. Go. Uh, I try, you know, I went to one meeting at Comedy Central and told them about something like that. But I didn't have the, uh, you know, given this conversation in my history, uh-huh. I didn't have the wherewithal to develop it with a bunch of people. And I would have loved to, their involvement to get some of the newer, hipper kids out on the comedy scene. But, you know, I thought following Rich was a pretty pretty good idea. And, you know, the, the thing about, you make the point about Comedy Central, you always want to avoid being profiled on Comedy Central because there's a Comedy Central curse. You know about that, right? No, what's that? Uh, I don't know. I don't know how. I don't know how prevalent it is in terms of how many people know about it. But it was. It's almost foolproof as a formula. Anytime Comedy Central would do like what do they call it a canned ham or like a feature interview with some of the people on the on that. The, the, oh, they, they never uh, break. Not only do they never break, they're usually unwatchable and awful. 
it's like a mix of Drowning Mona and She's Out of My League. Like, anywhere in that era from 2000 to 2008, or even a little before. It's just one after the other. And sometimes they're good filmmakers, but you'll get, like, John Waters talking about A Dirty Shame, like, his worst movie. Or, you know, you just, like, you go down the list, is like, somehow, or it might even necessarily be Demented, which I, which is pretty bad, too. But, you know, the, the sense that, is, is that your last, you know, bastion? Like, oh, oh, no, like, we can't promote this. Let's get Corky Romano on Canned Ham. Right. Canned Ham. Which I believe is, <laughs> I believe Corky Romano actually was. I would not doubt it. One of the savers of Dill Scallion was, was the Peter Berg alert. And my girlfriend piping up and go, oh, he looks good there. <laughs> and then Peter th- Berg was, was an investor as well. He was quite, quite a nice club. He kicked in some money. When, you know, that was like shoot, raise money. Right. Shoot, edit, raise money. No. That story. But be- I thought of him because of Corky Romano, which is probably one of his last real acting gigs. Apart from collateral, but and you, you of course probably know the Peter Berg story. I always relate him with that story he tells on uh, Dinner for Five. I do tell about Dick Van Dyke when he was doing like a Battle of the Network Stars or some like equivalent show. Of that he was Peter Berg was like the PA, and his job was to announce people on the microphone as they entered. You know, it was like, oh, you know, Mary Tyler Moore is here, Scott, whatever, you know, Scott Bayo is here, wh- whoever it was, and Dick Van Dyke is is you know starts to enter. Dick Van Dyke's completely trashed like totally drunk and he's like kind of wobbling all over the place and trips over the the glass that's opening up and Peter Berg's on the mic and goes Dick Van Dyke is down Dick Van Dyke is down that's funny so I, I know I know you you're a busy person and I'm sorry about the length of this but no, totally. you, I'm, I'm flattered you're taking the time to one pick apart the movies and then link them back together which I think is a unique formula. I just, I hope I reach enough people to spread the love about I Am Comic. Well, here's, here's how I look at like it. We haven't really talked about I Am Comic. We did, too. We talked about it for the last 25 minutes, and I've got more questions. Um, oh, good. But I think secretly you kind of like it. I, I, uh, you think I kind of like I Am Comic? I like parts of it, yeah. Yeah. I think secretly you like more than you're letting on to like. Actually, I'm being generous because I'm talking to you on the phone. No, no, I'm just kidding. If, if, but seriously, if I do the sequel, uh-huh. okay, which is like I, I think now I can get to Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock. A manager, the other, Aziz's manager said he could get me Tracy Morgan. So if I do Weeby Comics right. as a sequel, can you get me the young Hannibal and some of the guys coming up? I mean, are you in touch with those? I don't That's know any of them, but I'm sure, like, you know, with some quick phone calls I can get at, at those kind of people sure because that's what I want I want to get I want to get more minority comedians uh-huh. and more and there's a lot of old white guys right in stand up but it helps tell the story I mean I think their longevity in the business gives them some credibility but I would love to do a second installment with younger guys alternative you know, there's a whole scene of alternative people uh-huh. and now the whole writer YouTube star comedian so, I mean, I think, I think really the sequel is what you're going to like even better than, than you secretly love I Am Comic. Perhaps. I mean, as long as you don't go that route of the, you know, let's condescend because they're, you know, because of the diversity, like those um, Arabs of comedy, whatever those those tours are, which are kind of infuriating to me. Not like, I'm not like, oh, no, I mean, don't you, yeah. But don't you think I let the, let the comics speak for them for themselves a lot? Yes, you did. And so I, I appreciate uh, you know the occasional parenthetical remark right. on a few of them, 
like trying to cut down on the pretentious bullshit. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the comics are really happy with the the portrayal of the life. Well, you know, I would never have have had the heard of your movie without the other comics talking about it on the podcast. No, the pod, the podcast has been completely comedian generated. Mm-hmm. You know, I told you Mark was in Bridge at the Portland Festival, and then other people in the movie. Like Sklar Brothers have gone on other podcasts. Right. Well, they were on about three this week, and told and told the same stories a few times actually. So I got to hear the uh, Andy Kindler story more than once. That's funny. Yeah. Well, it, some of them do have the tried and true routine of a story. Mm-hmm. I saw Larry Miller tell the same story on the Green Room with Paul Provenza mm-hmm. moments before the premiere of I Am Comic on Showtime. The same, I mean, verbatim with the same blink of the eyebrow. And I don't care because I don't think people are actually staying up to watch that much comedy. And, uh, you know, his timing's good. And his best role will forever be the um, murdering uh, husband comic comedy uh, store owner on Law & Order anyway. But you apparently didn't see uh, the Larry Miller, Tommy Davidson movie Pros and Cons. I beg to differ. I have seen it. <laughs> I own it on Beta. Go you. Now, do you? How far back do you want to go? I mean, do you own Doing Time, starring Jeff Altman? Wow, I don't own that one. But I've seen I've seen Jeff Altman. That was in the pleated pant era. That's about eighty three or eighty four, somewhere there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm I'm a, I'm forever a Jeff Altman fan, not because I think he's funny, but because I own the Pink Lady and Jeff series. Now was he was he from Boston as well? I don't know. He's from Phonyville, wherever that is. Hey, you know, every comedian, with one, there's been one comedian that doesn't like I Am Comic, and I think he secretly likes it like you do. Fran Salamita, former comedian, Mm -hmm. turned documentarian, who made When Stand Up Stood Out, accused me of stealing the opening of I Am Comic from his movie. I don't accuse you of stealing from anything. That's, you know. Yeah, he said, you stole it because you're talking to the camera and saying that you were a comedian. Uh-huh. And I said, well, <laughs> well so that's not stealing. That's, that's, I said, that's, why don't that's you a, flatter yourself and call it a tip of the hat? That's a stock. But how many documentary filmmakers have talked to the camera, right. and we both happen to be comedians? That's, that's your stock premise, your um, Mexicans building up the wall that they, that they can't go across. Carlos Mencia thing. Yeah. Although I'm still on the side of everyone else in that, actually. But in, in that case... Ari Shafir should should uh, really you know you, if your joke is that bad and that that generic it's probably not a very good joke. Well, it's like when uh, it was one of the Michael Jackson trials and he was they were judging they were given the uh, the decision that day and I say to a coworker at the commercial production company you know of course he's going to go free he's white and they go oh that's funny. And I go, no, it's not. That's that's sitting. That's like playing t-ball. You're going to hear that joke tonight. And then they heard the joke on Jay Leno or Letterman or everybody or somebody. And I go, that's a that's just a blip. That's just there for everyone to make up. Right. So Mexicans building the wall. That's that's the low hanging fruit. So if you're stealing that joke, you've got bigger issues. Right. If you're doing that joke. You're doing a topical joke, and you're just getting by. You're a guy like Carlos who needs to constantly feed the machine because 
Maybe he got a little too successful too fast before he could write stuff and everything. So if you're going to do that joke, you know, Mexicans, we're going to build our own fence or whatever, who's going to build a fence? I don't, if you're complaining about that joke being stolen from you, you're fucked up. Right, that's what I didn't understand. I mean, yeah. you know, Joe Rogan is going to pick on him and say, hey, you stole Ari Shafir's joke. Yeah, he opened for you once and couldn't even pick a better joke. Right. The problem was that the, the Bill Cosby one was so good in terms of, like, that is a, that's a terrific bit that Cosby does. And that, that's a much better example of something that you'd notice if someone stole. Right, and apparently his friends did because they, they, they made him cut it out of the special. Right, and I heard that about that. I, I thought Mark, Mark Marin had a, a real deft hand at dealing with Carlos on that because he, he got real intimate mm-hmm. and he started talking. Like, Carlos, I mean, you can admit that you have the propensity to hear other things and maybe... Maybe just forget about it and then do it. Like he tried to give him the, the Robin Williams out. Right. That you're just so crazy. And and he slowly gave Carlos enough rope to, to hang himself a little bit with that. But he still never really came clean on it. Well, no, but the second part of that podcast, sure. he should have come clean then because it made him look worse. Because the weasel behavior was so obvious and see-through. It was it was unnecessary for him to say anything. It might have worked better if he just said, "All right, all right, I stole some stuff. I tried to give it my style. I needed this. I needed that. I needed the attention. Blah blah blah. I had a bad childhood." That been, that might have been even more. That been, might have been convincing compared to what he he tried to put on in the second part, where after Mark had interviewed Willie Barsana and a few others, and after right. that story about some guy who would he like died of a heart attack or killed himself or something like that because Carlos had stole his jokes. Well, you were destined to die anyway. That's just the thinning of the herd. That's good. Right. You're killing yourself because someone stole your joke. It wasn't just one. It was like a whole yeah. like chunk or something, like seven or eight minutes. Now, do you have a preference between... Men or women? No. I mean, that's up to you. Steve Bluestein's hairpiece or Phyllis Diller's hairpiece? <laughs> Steve Bluestein. you got to understand, uh, Rich... You know, it's helping wrangle some of these comedians, and then the people would call the comedy store, and I never hung out there. And I just like, wow, why, why are we, why are we wasting digital media on this interview? But then he turned out to be, you know, have one little nugget out of his, out of the 15 minutes that was sad and depressing when I felt like it should be sad and depressing in the movie. Uh, Philip Stiller, by the way, at 93, great tits. I mean, what a rack. And I'm not even joking. I mean, she looks great. She's lucid. She still has her timing. I thought it was a coup to get her. I, I, I'm a fan. I have her um, How to Make Money uh, in a Garage Sale uh, video, so. Hey, did you see the Joe Rivers documentary? I haven't, no. I, 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 here's the thing is that I, I know the genre it's in. I understand that. But... I am not going to be sympathetic or all that interested in watching her. I, I never really particularly found her funny, but that's not the problem. It's it, it's the same thing with with Shut Up and Sing, the 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 documentary about the Dixie Chicks. It's a perfectly valid subject for a documentary, but I don't care. Well, Heckler, Heckler, I liked uh, overall, but the Jamie Kennedy thing, I don't really care that people are. Not fans of your movies. Have, have you? Uh, it's not as plain one, Jamie Kennedy. It's like, hey, you're an actor. You made a choice. Yeah. You thought you were being hysterical on the set. Mm-hmm. 
and people aren't digging it, they have their right to right. to not like it. There's a section on my website called jamiekennedyatemypuppy.com, <laughs> which is a direct reference to Heckler in the sense that apparently Jamie Kennedy believes there's no such art, there's no art in film criticism. So it's a whole thing about like comparing films and talking about it as an art form and analysis and all that kind of stuff. Like as a, apart from straight reviews, like essays and stuff that I've written. So the anti auteur, the yeah. art of inertia. Yeah, the anti auteur is actually about Michael Winterbottom, whose movie I saw this morning. Oh, I got to look at this. The art of inertia is about movies in which nothing happens. Like Jarmusch or the Station Agent or stuff like that. Yeah, the Station Agent. That took a little while to get going. No, I don't even have a problem Those with it. Val Kilmer. Oh, I love Val Kilmer. I so do love Val Kilmer. I, I, you know, I actually went camping with Val Kilmer about four years ago. In New Mexico? In New Mexico on his ranch. It was insane. It was surreal. Because he had, first of all, he's very generous. Mm-hmm. You probably know Hot Shots was a... Not Hot Shots, what am I saying? Uh, Top Gun? No, no, no. The first... Top Secret. Top Secret. Top Secret, Top Secret. Top Secret, he was very funny. Yes, he is funny in that, yeah. And and I thought he was okay in MacGruber. I didn't like the ending of MacGruber. I I gave MacGruber a good review, almost entirely based on Val Kilmer. Well, see, he knows how to play it. Yes, and, he does, and I wish there were more funny things he had to say in MacGruber. MacGruber has moments that work, but there's just it just is not enough material for a whole movie. My son, he's 16, he and I were there Memorial Day watching MacGruber, <laughs> the only people in the theater. And it said, turn off your cell phone and be courteous to everyone. And my son turned around and looked at the empty room and went, shh. And that made me proud. Well, I can tell you that the screening room for that was not full, so even yeah. even the day before it opened. Oh, Val, nice guy, took his camping, had a couple of assistants bring out pre-arranged meals in giant uh, storage containers for us, and I've been camping in, uh, you know, the, the foothills of Ohio and the, the Appalachia off of Virginia. I was taught that you... You brush, you go to the river with that iron skillet, mm-hmm. and you wash it out for the next meal. Mm-hmm. And one of Val's helpers came over and just shook his head and said, "Please, that, that's my job." <laughs> <laughs> Which to me was very Hollywood. Uh, yes, despite being in New Mexico. Now, if you ever, I know you, you're not, you haven't seen it, but my review of um, Bad Lieutenant, the the Nicolas Cage one, goes into great detail about. The deal that was going on that in why Val Kilmer's in that movie, why he's in Bad Lieutenant, and his whole New Mexico shtick. Um, oh, did they shoot it? They shot it there? No, they, they shot it in New Orleans, and he shot another movie in New Orleans called Streets of Blood with Sharon Stone, Fifty Cent, around the same time. In exchange, and this is never like you know, I I could never get anyone you know on the record to say this, but I just you know deduced it pretty easily. In exchange, that Avi Lerner shot some films who produced um, Bad Lieutenant and Streets of Blood, shot some films in New Mexico. Gotcha. With Val Kilmer in them, of course. But because Kilmer is trying to... what He's trying to sort of get more films to be shot in New Mexico so he can run for mayor or senator or something like that. Is that about right? Governor? Right, right. He, I think he's running for governor. Right, something like that. And that... But he, I, I don't 
don't know that it was for that very purpose. Oh, I, you know, I think that's perfectly valid. You know, that's not even like me being cynical. It's like, okay, fine. You know, if because part of the reason that they started shooting this stuff in New Orleans is like it worked like. Uh, for a while, this one was too expensive to shoot in America. They shot in Vancouver or Toronto. And then it became right. too expensive to shoot in Vancouver or Toronto. So they went to Romania or other Eastern European countries where they can make, you know, things look like ruins and be poor and, you know, sort of exotic. And then when we need, a, you know, a place that looks like shit, now we'll just go to New Orleans because it looks like shit after Katrina. So we can, that's where we can shoot for, for poverty. And then, then now it's Detroit. And it'll just keep going to wherever is downtrodden. But I, I'm okay with the fact that they'll go to New Mexico because it's not exploiting it. it it's just shooting there. Fine. It's a different location. Well, it's exploiting it for its God's for God's beauty. Right. No. But in a good way. Not not in a oh, sure. yeah. Not in a New Orleans well, kind of. I feel dirty watching this kind of way. No, I had a um, I had a script I wanted to do with Val about uh, like swinging vampires, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it seems a little overplayed now. But it was again. I was going to do a spoof. This is last year, actually. And I would have easily changed the setting from the small Arizona town to a small New Mexico town just to cater to... Right, because it wouldn't have mattered. A billion-dollar movie star's home so he could live on his ranch and walk to work every day. Right. Um, let alone, I mean, it was just it's a beautiful country. It's God's country. Right. About five states in the United States call their state God's country. What, are you asking like which which would I suggest God prefers one way or the other or yeah like Big Sky Montana or is it New Mexico is it you know Oklahoma or I'm, I'm gonna have to go with Mexico City sorry Mexico City yeah well that's not God's country <laughs> I know it's the dirtiest place you've ever been if you've been there uh, I have been there actually and and and, and how, how's the breathing there I remember it being pretty tough yeah, it's pretty pretty tough. You might want to bring your uh, air freshener. Yes, not not just that, but you know, you might want to bring uh, money to give the two year olds who are trying to sell their wares on the street, which I found the most depressing. Um, yeah, it's a pretty. Um, I mean, I stayed in a nice part of town, but that only rubbed it in. Right. Is there an uh, like an Alcoholics Anonymous equivalent for comedy? Yes, it's called uh, stage readings. A lot of the people that used to do stand-up that have segued into other things will still, a few times a year, do a spoken word funny story, like a first-person quasi-nonfiction story, mm-hmm. and read it uh, in front of a crowd. Uh, it used to be at M Bar in L.A. I don't know where they did it in New York, but I know they happen. And I'll be doing one this Saturday night at Porter's Bookstore in West L.A., 7 o'clock, along with uh, Scott Carter, producer of the Bill Maher program. Yes, wishful thinking if I'd get this up by Saturday. Yeah. But still, I mean, I, that's, that's, what, that's the AA for, for stand-up, is you just do these little things every now and then to, you know, to get it out. I went to a lot of that early alternative comedy when I was in high school. I think I saw, like, the Scar Brothers when they were still working out their show that eventually appeared on MTV, Apartment F or something like that. Right, right. No, it's a little different than that. What you're referencing, I believe, is the alternative scene where you're supposed to go up and work something out that's not a routine that you do in the club all the time. Right. This is an actual, like, four-page story 
usually around a theme. Oh, I've seen, like I've seen that, too. I've seen that kind of thing, too, separately in a different show, where people read, like, there was a show called Rejected in New York for a while. People come up yeah, and read Yeah, Afterbirth is one where people talk about their kid. Okay. And so, so that would be the closest thing to, to AA. There is, there is quite a, a bit of crossover between the real AA and stand-up, though. You know, the addictive personality, obsessive-compulsive behavior. And I'm sure that the next documentary on stand-up will cover that. And I touched on it, and I asked people about it, but it wasn't that funny. It wasn't that, I guess it could have been edited as relevant. But uh, to me, it was more about the heart of uh, watching Rich get back and then folding in the little the little topics. Now, is Showtime going to put out a DVD with, like, you know, hours of deleted scenes, or are they going to put out a DVD at all? Uh, Showtime is not putting out the DVD, but I do have a distributor. Anchor Bay? Uh, I think then they deal with Showtime? No, we, we carved it out totally oh. separate okay. from, from them. It's a company called Monterey Media. I know them. And they, they love the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, they recently put out the Red Baron. But really good people who love the movie, and uh, I want to go to comedy clubs and put a, like a little tour together with some of the comedians from the movie, but they don't have to be in the movie. Mm-hmm. And show, I've shown the movie like at the Laugh Factory in L.A. and another cafe with a comedy show. And it seems to be, I mean, as a filmmaker, do you want your movie shown while waitresses go around serving drinks and fried food? No. But I may even cut, like, a truncated version of the movie and then have comedians go on afterwards. So it's like a 90-minute to two-hour show. And, and, but to answer your question, the DVD will have Mark Maron complaining why he's not in the, the real movie. And it'll have Kathleen Madigan playing tennis with a homeless man that didn't make the cut. Or uh, a little more Bobby Slayton talking about, you know, playing Vegas. And hopefully I can grab a few more young kids. How come, fact, who's been, what I was going to ask is, how come Bo- Bobby Slayton never died of lung cancer? You know, I don't know why Bobby Slayton didn't die of lung cancer. I don't really think he smoked. I just think he talks like this, and he always has, and then it became his character. I've never seen him smoke a cigarette. Oh, okay. Um, but there was a guy, uh, oh, man. I can see his face. We interviewed him in New York. Sean Patton's a guy interviewed. Mm-hmm. He had some Comedy Central buzz, but maybe he's got the curse now. But um, his interview was taken a little too seriously because he thought, oh, I'm going to be in this documentary about comedy. You know, some people, I would even stop them and say, you can be funny. Like Ahmed Ahmed was going on about jokes and Brent Ernst. You know that guy? I know Ahmed Ahmed, but who did you just mention? Uh Brett Ernst? No, I don't. He's a funny comedian. But he started explaining to me, especially the young guys who didn't know that I was a comedian. Mm-hmm. And so imagine I'm as dry as, as you. Okay. And I'm going, what's a callback? And I'm trying to get them to be funny about it, and they just think, oh. He doesn't really, doesn't, really really doesn't know what a callback is? Really doesn't know what a callback is. He goes, well, that's when you do a joke. And, you, and so it, the mean-spirited way would be to expose them for being just dumb about the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And so the interview didn't make the cut because it didn't move uh, any, if there's any semblance of story, it didn't move it along. Right. And it just was a little too... Uh, you know, you, you dissect comedy, it dies on the operating table. Right. So. I mean, Tommy Davidson was very serious 
And then after the fact, he got he, he got booed where I watched it. No way. Yeah, we all booed him. No, he's he's so serious. And then afterwards, he was, he comes up. He goes, "I must have been drinking some green tea that day. I was tripping out." Because you know, I'm serious. I'm serious there. I said, "Oh, I know you're serious." He, he really, he, that what happened is he started talking, and I rolled my eyes, and my friend looked at me. He's like, "Is he serious?" I said, "I think so." Yeah, but that's the that's the humor. Oh, you mean you were trying to show him as a shallow and funny person? Because that's what came across. <laughs> no, I was trying to new, show him new, shallow, new agey, and uh, full of shit. Yeah, that's well. Then I you did a great job. Age. There you go. You get to take credit for that. The nadir of Tommy Davidson's career. There you go. Uh, yeah, but, but in all fairness, I paid heavily for a clip of him that does well with the mainstream audience that he killed. He actually talks about being in the comedy surfing wave. Right. And then I, I show a clip of him doing I mean, it wasn't like I hung him out to dry. No, I know. I gave him, yeah. You gave him the opportunity to do it. It's just that I'm, on, you know, watching it. There's two or three of us there just like, oh, my goodness. This is happening. He is actually saying this. And in fact, I, I laugh every time. Uh, the, the, in fact, I was. It leads to the other question I had: is that is there real joke analysis, or is that like an aristocrat's kind of joke? Uh, you mean the like set up punch that kind of thing? Uh, no, I was. You know, there's that rumor that aristocrats is completely made up by Paul Provenza. I don't really believe it, but you know that that it's all a big prank. And that it, the joke doesn't really exist in that form; that it just kind of was invented recently, and it does. But it, what what I meant? Yes, was... Yes, I believe that. I believe that. I believe the bigger joke is that they they made a successful movie out of no joke. Because right. I never heard of the joke, and I never heard anybody tell it. But I've heard people do that kind of thing. I mean, I've heard that that shtick before. Well, that's just a yes and, isn't it? Correct. Yeah, it's a yes and with yourself. Uh, yes, and the, the punchline being that it, there, it's not accurate that there is no punchline, because the punchline is the aristocrats belies what has just been described. So that is indeed, by definition, a punchline. Oh, I wasn't suggesting there was no punchline. I'm saying that... Uh... No, they say that in the movie. Okay. In the movie, they go, the aristocrats oh, right, right. a joke without a punchline. But I, I believe, and you know, it's funny, for Benza, you can ask him, and he's, I'm sure he would tell you at this point, that... Gilbert Gottfried said something like that at the Friars Club or at you know one of the roasts, mm-hmm. and that happened. That gave him the idea to do the movie. And the, the, for me, it's it's a marvel of editing skills between uh, Paul and Emery Emery, the guy who like, either co-directed it or edited it with him. That they built up this joke so that when Gilbert Gottfried's going to tell it, mm-hmm. a lot of people go, "Oh my God, he's really going to tell that joke." I mean, that to me is the wonderful craftsmanship so I don't think it's a real joke but does joke analysis as as shown in the movie does that really exist or is that a hoax as well that's a hoax okay I, I, oh you mean in, in I Am Comic with the Comedy Evaluator Pro yes oh no that's not a joke man that's a real dude that's a real guy I, I thought you were saying okay I, I get what you're it's, people have asked that question a lot. Was that like a put-on? Mm-hmm. And after getting rich to do open mic night, mm-hmm. after getting rich to do the black club, I thought, what if I get rich a comedy coach, a guy who comes in and doesn't know that rich was 
famous at one point in the comedy circles and tries to explain to Rich, much like the young comedians telling me what a callback was, mm-hmm. how to do a joke and how to be funny and how to build a routine, that it would just build this anger and frustration. Because, you know, manipulation would be funny. So in searching the internet, I come across Steve Roy with the Comedy Evaluator Pro software. And to me, it's like striking comedy gold. And I, talk, I sent him some emails. He's very cautious of, you know, if I was going to make fun of him or whatever. And he came to L.A. and he evaluated, you know, the comedian. What you see in the movie is about as, about as raw as you, as you get in a documentary. In fact, I had asked Rich not to rip him a new asshole because of how ludicrous the whole idea is. Well, has no one ever explained to the guy, like, how arbitrary gauging specific kinds of laughs is? Yeah, Jamie Kennedy did. He said, there should be no, uh... <laughs> try to do the callback. Yeah. Uh, yeah, people have made that argument, and he says, to be successful, by definition of a comedian, you have to get laughs. And the more laughs you get, the funnier you are. I mean, he believes that. He is, he is unwavering on that view. So if you tell him... You can't look at two similar paintings and tell me which one's better because, you know, it's in the eye of the beholder. He'll say that's not true. One warrants a bigger price tag. One's in a museum. One's not. You know? But that's value. That's a little different, though. And that's that's not a that's not a person. It's a thing. I mean, like, we both agree on this anyway. That it's that it's completely arbitrary and ridiculous, anyhow. Because oh, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah, I no, saw I, that I the Paul F. Tompkins special that he had on uh, Comedy Central. A couple weeks ago, and I didn't laugh that much, but it's one of my favorite specials I've seen in years. Well, do you take Bill Cosby's bit that Carlos did, mm-hmm. and if you ran that through Comedy yeah, Evaluator Pro, Four it minutes? would not yeah. get. It, there's one big punchline at the mm-hmm. end, but mm-hmm. you're completely enthralled by the storytelling yeah. of the rock contour. Right. So, yeah, it's just ludicrous. But I will say, it's Comedy Evaluator Pro. So he's made a lot of improvements from the beta version. Right, I figured. Is there going to be like an upgrade, like with WordPress and everything? I believe I believe there will be. Okay. Uh, nice guy, has his view. Um, if but here's the here's the the irony is, if you were a young comedian and you bought that software, uh-huh. it would inherently help you because it means that you'd be listening to your act and hearing where you got laughs and where you had lulls, or where something wasn't clear and where you lost the audience or... It would help you in that way, but the way it wouldn't help you is that you were young and did not know how to pirate software. That's true. So you'd be out for $49 right. or whatever exactly. Because all it takes is one copy and everyone has it. What was that, that great punchline in uh, uh, the front of The Onion, which was... Um, Man actually buys Photoshop, <laughs> or some, something like you know Photoshop actually purchased for you know whatever so, something some equivalent you know for something obviously people don't pay for. I went. I, I, I gave you plenty of time on I am comic, uh, but did I miss something that you wanted to talk about that you were expecting me to cover? Other than the thing about was it John Fox who used to what come in the ice trays or something? Yeah, yeah, he ever put his dick in the mayonnaise. Mm-hmm. Or uh, there was another guy, 
And John Fox is still out on the road every now and then. He was in Michigan, and I wanted to uh, I wanted to go there with Nikki Glaser uh-huh. and stay at the comedy condo with John Fox and Nikki, but I ran out of money. Uh-huh. No, this is this has been uh, a delightful conversation. I hope. I mean, I, I'm not a practicing comedian like people you've had, or you know, my film's not as uh, all highfalutin as maybe some of the other directors. So I hope I could. You mean like the Book of know, Eli? You talking about that? Yeah, you know, I'm not. I'm not a, a brother, and you know, I'm a brother to my sister, but I'm not like a brother filmmaking team. I do have two sons who help me on the movie, um, and they're 14 and 16, and those are their names. But they help me, like when we did Nick Kroll, they helped me carrying the lights and the equipment. And uh, I told them they could be directors because it's like husband and wife occasionally, brothers. There's numerous examples of you know, successful brothers in filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And then in short form, you could, or experimental stuff, you could be a Swedish collective. Right. And the other thing that you have by doing that is that you indoctrinated them as slaves thinking that there's actually something going to come out of it. Exactly. Working for free. Very nice. So I hope that, I hope I've given you, I mean, I know you're going to weed through this down to the four minutes. It'll be on your... Four minutes? No, it'll be an hour at least. So I, I hope it makes sense and I hope it works and is there anything that I let? Did I let you down or anything? Did I? Yeah, you're white. I don't like that. I did write down something like, "Is there an actual comedy for dummies?" Did somebody write that? You know, it's so funny. The producer, uh, Robert Mickelson, Michelson on the uh, I Am Comic, he produced a series of videos for the uh, for dummies people, and I that was one of the titles I was going to use for this. And I wanted to use the the branding of the familiar stick figure, yellow and black chalkboard looking thing. Mm-hmm. I thought that people uh, in in America would know that brand, and it would sell some sell some tickets. So, if you're listening for dummies, go ahead and rip me off. Sounds like you're going to do it anyway. He said it was it was mired in red tape to not get involved with those people. Yeah can't have everything. I guess you could, you know, maybe Phyllis Diller has some wigs you can have. You can have those. But She's got a room full of wigs. I'd hope so. I mean, uh, uh, literally, like, your master bedroom suite, mm-hmm. she has a, size, a room that size full of wigs. I would hope she's got more shoes than Imelda Marcos than in, in wigs. Well, let, me, let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. With, with I Am Comic, mm-hmm. and I want, I, I'm serious I want to do Weeby Comics as a sequel. But maybe I'm, I'm limiting myself with comedy. I mean, could it be I am podiatrist? I am trash man. Do you want a serious answer to any of this? I don't think you do. I am... No, I'm just trying to <laughs> riff. I am sous chef. We, we can see I mean, why your career has taken... Oh, never mind. <laughs> oh. And now, a bonus segment, which begins with me talking about Lee Daniels, the director of Precious about his first film, Shadowboxer. And the funniest part about uh, Shadowboxer is you listen to the commentary, and he seems really focused on the fact that they were able to get a zebra for the fun of Steven Dorff's house. Spends probably 15 minutes talking about that zebra. I was on the set of a commercial for a uh, children's meal that one would get at a fast food place. Mm-hmm. And the client actually asked us with this kind of budget, why didn't we get real unicorns? 
swear to God, I said, they're all booked on a big Barbie movie that's shooting out in Malibu. 